But for years, real estate companies would raise, you know, a million to $2 million per deal via crowdfunding. And it took a really long time to get to critical mass. So as an example, we recently had a sponsor raise $17 million in equity on the platform for a development deal in Nashville. And it was really this amazing moment when it felt like crowdfunded real estate deals could finally compete with larger institutional capital sources. And so I think that, you know, as you look out to the next 10 years, it's going to be larger deals and larger dollars. So today, the average, you know, capital raised via crowdfunding is probably five or six million dollars per deal. If you look out 10 years, I think that retail crowdfunding is going to truly compete with institutions and you're going to see check sizes of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars per deal. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partnerships for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. Jillian, welcome to the show today. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Why don't we just get started with kind of your career and how that led into starting Realty Mogul? Sure. So I uh, I grew up in a very entrepreneurial family. You know, we were the family that talked about business around the dinner table. My dad was an entrepreneur. Mom was entrepreneurial. And when I graduated from business school, I knew that I wanted to go to work in sort of the money business. Um, you know, I, I told my dad, I think as a 16 or 17 year old kid, I wanted to be in the money business. And he asked why. And I said, because I never want to deal with you know, the hassles of inventory. My dad was in the, the import-export business, uh, manufacturing in China and importing into the U.S. and then re-exporting into, you know, Europe and South America and sort of had heard around those dinner table conversations, all the perils of dealing with, you know, physical inventory and physical products. So I said, you know, money is, um, you know, it can, it can move on the, in the ether, right? It can move in the internet um, digitally. So I always sort of knew that I wanted to be in the finance industry, Graduated from university, went to work in banking, um, spent bounced around a little bit within banking. I worked for Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, but the majority of my time was in wealth management. And I think one of the themes that I saw working in wealth management was that our wealthiest clients either made their money in real estate or kept their money in real estate. And it was sort of this interesting insight of, you know, real estate seems to be a really, really favorable asset class when you think over long periods of time. So was really interested in real estate. My grandfather developed properties in Los Angeles. So I grew up kind of around the real estate business. My mom was in luxury residential business and my dad through his business pursuits owned some industrial and office assets as well. So always loved real estate. Um, kind of how I transitioned from banking into you know digital finance and sort of the crowdfunding business. In 2012, the Jobs Act came out, which is a, a piece of legislation which changed the Securities Act 
um, really for the first time since the 1930s. And I was asked to opine on how that would impact the bank. And so I did an entire analysis and I went back to my boss and essentially said, this really isn't going to impact the bank. I don't think it's anything you need to be worried about, but I'm going to quit and go start a company, you know, around this political change. Um, and originally the Jobs Act was crafted really for startups and small businesses, kind of the, your, you know, local bakery or your local pizzeria sort of financing neighborhood type businesses. But there was nothing in it that prohibited you know, the sale of real estate investments online. And so that was kind of the interesting insight that I had where I said, you know, can we apply this piece of legislation to real estate? And that was really the inception story of the business. I love it. And I love the the way you describe not having to manage inventory. I've never thought about it that way, but um, that, was a, that was a great description. Will you set the tone for what crowdfunding in the real estate space looked like when you got started? You've been doing this a while. What did things look like at the time that you got started when this kind of idea around, you know, democratizing access and the Jobs Act and all that was kind of um, coming to be? Yeah, it really didn't exist. I mean, we were one of the, you know, first platforms, um, you know, to come to market. And so there there wasn't anybody to model after. I mean, we were very much, you know, building this from scratch. If anything, I would say the greatest inspiration was Lending Club. So Lending Club, they're now a public company, but they were doing unsecured consumer debt and they were selling that unsecured consumer debt online to other retail investors. And so we modeled a lot of our sort of corporate structure initially off of, you know, some of the structures that Lending Club had used and this concept of borrower payment dependent notes that we don't have to go to through in depth. But, you know, originally that was kind of how we modeled the business. Over time, we've adapted, you know, quite a bit. Um as we've learned and as the markets have changed and as, you know, the regulations have changed, but, you know, there, there really was nobody to look to. So the insight was, you know, we've got, an, we have to build a network of investors and we want to build, you know, a network of opportunities. So this sort of two-sided marketplace, two-sided marketplaces are very challenging to build. You know, they're not for the, uh, the faint of heart. If I it wasn't for my, you know, how naive I was as a, as a younger <laughs> entrepreneur, I, I couldn't do it again today. I mean, I just, I don't think I'd have the stomach for it. And thankfully, you know, we've gotten through that, that critical mass component, but you know, it really started out as like, you just got to do your first deal, right? So our first deal was $110,000 duplex in Compton. I mean, if you talk kind of, you know, smallest deal we could find, and frankly, Compton's not a very good market or sub market, but you know, in that deal, we had four investors. One was my parents. One was, you know, uh, a childhood or, or really kind of a childhood adolescent friend from college. Um, another was a gentleman that I knew. And then the fourth was someone that I didn't know. It was, you know, a gentleman who invested $25,000 online. Um, you know, I called him personally and I didn't introduce myself as the CEO. I just said, you know, calling from Realty Mogul because I was trying to make it seem like we had a bigger company, you know, in the early days. And, um, and it was kind of this eureka moment, right? So we had four investors who invested on the platform, three I knew and handheld, you know, on the platform. And the other, I had no idea who he was. He was a, a, a gentleman based out of Houston, you know, investing in this LA deal. We'd never spoken, you know, at the time the platform had, you know, very little press, very little, you know, trust elements or credibility or anything that might, you know, make people feel comfortable, you know, sending us money on the internet. Um, but that was the first deal. And then the second deal was a $300,000 deal. Um, and in that deal, we had, you know, another couple of investors that, that I didn't know personally. And so, you know, you could start kind of seeing like, wow, is this going to work, right? Is this actually going to work? And, 
Um, you know, then we we raised a million dollars on the platform, and then ten million in aggregate on the platform, and then a hundred million in aggregate on the platform, and it was really just you know one foot in front of the other. But you know, at the surface, crowdfunding is this idea of disparate investors pooling capital together to make an investment. Right? In our case, they're all real estate investments, but theoretically, it could be any type of investment. Um, and it was pretty remarkable to see in those early days, you know, folks come and invest that I'd never spoken to, I didn't know, they didn't know me. Um, and it, it really gave me the courage and the conviction to keep going that there might actually be, you know, a business there. There's something I want to ask that uh, there's a lot I want to ask, but I think there's something unique that you said, you, you, you know, like most entrepreneurs that will often say, if I knew what I was getting myself into, I might not have ever done it. If, if you had to go start another two-sided marketplace today, is there something that you learned along the way that you're like, okay, I, I now have these skills or I know this, it would be easier the second time around, or is it is challenging every time you try and create it? I, I genuinely think it would be harder today. There's a lot more competition. It's easier to start businesses. You know, it's cheaper to host. It's cheaper to get them live. And so that you've seen this, you know, proliferation of online and digital businesses. I, I honestly wouldn't do it, Chris. I mean, you couldn't pay me enough money to start another two-sided marketplace knowing what I know and knowing sort of, for forget even in the real estate space, right? Um, it, it is so, so challenging. And, you know, I'm a decade in now. I never could have imagined that it would have taken us a decade to get to you know, the scale that we're at. And I'm incredibly proud, right? I mean, we've now had investors invest nearly a billion dollars, you know, on the digital platform. Um, very, very, very proud of that. But, you know, it's very challenging, right? I mean, I, I personally called every single investor in the early days of the business just to say hello, right? Not even to talk about the investments, but just to, you know, try and build some credibility to, you know, this digital platform. Um, so I probably called a couple thousand investors in the early days, you know, I sourced every real estate deal that we did in the early days. Thankfully, I have some some wonderful, wonderful people now who you know do that. Um, but it's it's very, very challenging. You're building two businesses at once, and the the bigger challenge, even more so than building two businesses at once, is that you have to build them in lockstep. So we we're always out of balance, right? We always have either too many investors or too many deals. Um, you know, or vice versa. And so that's very challenging to manage, right? And it's challenging to staff. It's challenging to, you know, keep morale up. It's challenging to, you know, do right by both sides. And, you know, there's always the conversation in our company, well, which side is more important, right? Is it the investors or is it the real estate companies? And my consistent, um, you know, feedback to the team is, neither side can be more important, right? They both have to be running efficiently. We have to perfect the basics on both sides for it to be a great business. And so that being said, they're always at odds, right? There's always a question of where do you deploy more resources? Do you deploy it on the supply side or the demand side? And, you know, thankfully we're through, we're through most of that now, if not all of that. I mean, we've got good balance. We've got critical mass on both sides. You know, we've got over a hundred clients now on the real estate company side, and we've got two hundred fifty thousand members um, on the on the membership or on the investor side. Not all of those have invested, but you know they're in our in our database. So we've gotten to enough scale now where you know it's not a it's not a conundrum day to day on where do you spend time. But you know for the first seven years probably that that friction existed, um, and that's very 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 hard. So. Uh, kind of a cop-out way, but I wouldn't build another two-sided marketplace today. I think the comp competition is, you know, just tremendous. Yep. Yep. I think, you know, ha being in the real estate industry myself, 
as I think about 10 years ago, and this is from somebody that's not in the crowdfunding industry, you started at a place where naturally when things are new, there's uh, the, the trust factor and the adopted set of rules is, you know, is this going to work? Should we trust the system? And then I feel like we're at a place today where crowdfunding is like widely accepted. It's been around 10 years. The, the folks that maybe, you know, weren't in it for the right reasons have, have gone away. And now it's a very like accepted thing. Maybe the question is, was there an inflection point that you can look back on that said, you know, around this year or something that a critical moment in the industry happened to where crowdfunding wasn't looked at as much as this kind of crazy way to raise capital and it started becoming more uh, mainstream and accepted as a way to do business? Yeah, I, I think it took about seven years. So I would say the inflection point was about three years ago, call it, you know, 2019, um, where just everything got easier, right? The conversations with sponsors got easier. They'd, you know, had friends or peers who had used crowdfunding before and used, you know, the technology platforms to raise capital for their own deals before. So those conversations got easier. You know, investors knew what the term crowdfunding actually meant. Um, a lot of investors on our platform had, you know, seen deals go full cycle. So they'd invested in a deal and then that deal had sold and, you know, they'd, they'd had participation in whatever the outcome of that transaction was. So it, it took about seven years, I think, to build the track record, build the credibility. And we were early, right? I mean, I think in hindsight, you know, it's hard because you don't want to be, you don't want to be too early because you end up spending a lot of money educating the market. And I think we were that company, right? We were the company. And a lot of our peers didn't survive, right? A lot of our peers just did, made poor economic decisions and didn't survive. Um, but we were one of the companies that was early. We spent a lot of money educating the market. Um, there were other companies who came in, you know, later who, you know, got the benefit of a lot of that education, which is fine, right? I mean, we always knew we were building this industry on our backs. And, and it's something I'm really proud of. And I think our team is really proud of. Um, and then you had other entrants who, you know, entered way too late and they couldn't get critical mass because real estate companies and real estate investors had already sort of picked the platforms that they wanted to build, you know, their portfolios on. So, you know, I'd say if, if you're, if you're taking the question of, do you want to be too early or too late? I'd rather be too early um, than too late. Cause I haven't seen any of the, you know, late comers really bloom. Um, but you know, I'd say it was about seven years in that it took to build that critical mass and really build the education on both sides. And, and I thought, you know, as a, when I started the company, I thought that would take, you know, two years, right? I mean, I was super naive as to, um, you know, what it would take to build, but, you know, we're through it now and, and we're winning and it's a lot of fun and we've got critical mass. And, you know, I, I was out to dinner last night with two clients of ours and, you know, they said, well, share with us what's going on in the business. And I said, look, we've, we've had investors invest nearly a billion dollars in the platform and they're shocked, right? I mean, that's a, that's a real business. That's a real, you know, we're not a traditional private equity firm, but there's not that many private equity firms out there, you know, minus the, the big behemoths, obviously that can say, yeah, we put out, you know, a billion dollars of capital. So, yeah. It's amazing. In that billion dollars, is it is it pretty evenly distributed or is it the 80-20 rule where 80% of it has come from the majority or is, is, is it really kind of spread out amongst the crowd? I mean, look, it's pretty spread out, right? We've had close to 20,000 transactions, um, you know, so that's a, that's a lot of people. It's a lot of activity. Um, you know, so it's, it's pretty spread. There's certainly whales, right? There's certainly investors who have invested a couple million dollars, you know, via the technology platform into, you know, a bunch of offerings with different issuers or different, you know, real estate companies or sponsors. But, 
you know, our, our mission has always been to help make this asset class more accessible, right? So we don't want it to be the old country club network. We don't want it to be, you know, behind closed doors. We want it to be behind, you know, our password protected site, but, you know, not, not something that's not accessible. So I think we've stayed true to that mission, you know, all these years. Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we're able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform. When we started to look under the hood of these real estate investment managers that were telling us about their problems, one of the things that we identified was that kind of the operating system of record for managing a lot of the most important information was still spreadsheets. They have never been designed to be a system of record, right? And and when we when we started looking at kind of why real estate reporting was the way that it was, what we found is that spreadsheets were being used as a system of record. And the problem that that created was it makes it really hard to take this information, get the information out of spreadsheets and get it into the hands of the people who need it the most, which are your investors. You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjuniperSquare.com for more information. That's S-E-E junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. So is, is the path forward really like it's not a maybe necessarily a winner take all market, although, you know, as as these platforms gain more credibility, the top sponsors want to be there and that will attract the top investors. And maybe I just answered my own question, but is the path forward a how do we continue to get the absolute best sponsors to raise capital on our deals and the investors will follow? Or how do we become a place that, and I, again, I know you've said it's both sides are important, but as you think about the next 10 years, what kind of gets you to become that ultimate brand name, sponsor-driven with the capital to back it up or vice versa? It's both, right? I mean, that that's that inherent friction that we were talking about earlier. I mean, I, I think there is still a big educational opportunity on the investor side. So, you know, I still think that there's a lot of investors who are members on our platform, but they haven't actually made an investment that just don't have the confidence to make that investment. And so how do you give people confidence? I think you do it through education. So we've got, you know, big initiatives around thought leadership and education and doing webinars and, you know, writing white papers and trying to really get people educated about real estate, about the risks of real estate, about, you know, the potential benefits of investing in real estate. So I think that's really, really critical on the investor side. And then on the sponsor side, I think it's all about user experience, right? I mean, the sponsors care about two things. One, have the capital be there when they need the capital, right? So give them technology and give them the ability to raise that capital. Um, And then two, their experience, right? So what does it look like on a go forward basis? And I think that's where we've really differentiated from some of the other platforms is we've said, we're going to stay involved for the life of the transaction. We're going to help those sponsors, you know, in any which way that we can, we're going to distribute K1s. We're going to run QC on distributions. We're going to, you know, be the first line of defense. If an investor has questions, assuming, you know, we, we know the answer to that through the sponsor reporting. It's pretty rare when one of our investors goes direct to a sponsor and that's not the case on other platforms. So we've had a lot of sponsors come to us and say, look, I just can't handle you know, having 500 investors or a thousand investors, I'm not set up for it. I don't have the infrastructure built out for it. And and through the way that we structure our deals, they don't need to, right? We've got a big asset management team. We've got a big client services team, you know, that's, that's 
trained and um, capable of answering those questions and, you know, playing sort of first line of defense. So we think that at the end of the day, we've built, you know, the winning model, but first and foremost, sponsors care that their deals can get funded, you know, through the technology platform. So, you know, it's using the education for investors to, you know, give them the confidence to invest in the first place or invest more if that's, you know, appropriate for their individual risk and reward profile, and then providing really great experience for both sides. Is there an agreement or something signed that that prevents the investor? Do they sign something that says, you know, you can't just go straight to the sponsor? Or is it like a gentleman's agreement? Like, how do you all think about that to where the LP does go to y'all first and not to the GP first? For questions or for like subsequent investments? Yeah, I guess. Well, I guess both, uh, honestly. Yeah. So on the question side, we don't sign. The investor doesn't sign anything. Um, we we bring enough value that they choose to. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is we have investors who, you know, they might come on our platform and choose to invest with 10 different sponsors. So it's much easier for them to go through, you know, their dedicated client services person than it would be to reach out to those 10 different sponsors individually. So as long as we're providing, you know, a high level of service and high responsiveness and we run, you know, SLAs and how quickly we respond to emails and pick up the phone, nothing drives me more crazy than companies that don't pick up the phone. So, you know, like my team knows we pick up the phone, right? And we respond to emails and we respond to voicemails and we have SLAs and we measure our team by that and we you know, bonus our team based on, you know, timeliness, because I want people to be incentivized and aligned on the kind of white glove client service that I, I expect us to provide as a business. Um, so, so it's not about the investor signing away, you know, any rights. It's about us providing such a great level of service that they have no incentive to go elsewhere. How do y'all approve and vet sponsors? And has that changed over time? Like as, as the, as this grows, you know, what matters to you when a, when a sponsor is getting on the, uh, the platform? Yeah. So we, we have kind of two levels of vetting. One is sponsors have to meet our minimum qualifications. So, you know, we're reviewing their requisite experience. We're looking at their track records. Um, sponsors also have to go through background checks, criminal checks, reference checks. And, and really what we're trying to figure out is can the sponsor actually execute on this business plan, right? Do they, are they, do, do we believe that they're capable of executing on this business plan? And, you know, are they not, you know, criminals, um, obviously is really, really critical. So that's what we're looking to vet out. What, what we can't vet out and, and what we don't propose to vet out is whether or not this deal is going to go exactly as according to plan, right? There's too many facets of the deal for us to be able to make that assessment. And so we don't try to make that assessment, but we try to have, you know, minimum qualifications that those sponsors need to meet. And then we also have quality control metrics. So we have somebody who goes on site to the property um, to, you know, vet number one, that there's actually a property there and vet two, that, you know, there's not any, you know, major obvious issues that are not being properly disclosed. Um, so that's part of our quality control. We will review, you know, environmental reports, we'll review PCA reports. And, and really, we're not trying to opine if those things are good or bad. What we want to make sure is that those items, if any items come up, are properly disclosed because one of our core values is to empower investors. So give investors the information that they need so that they can make an appropriate financial decision for themselves, right? Like the beauty of crowdfunding is that it's self-serve. You as an investor get access to the information. You get to make the decision that's appropriate for you. And, and different investors have different risk and reward profiles, right? Some investors want to take a ton of risk and they want the potential for higher returns. Other investors want to take, you know, less risk and have, you know, the potential for lower returns comparatively. So 
we don't dictate what kind of risk and reward profile those investors should have, but we want to empower them with all the information to make an appropriate decision for themselves. Yep. And and assuming that a sponsor has been on, uh, what does it take for the for them to actually get a deal that uh, that passes y'all's uh, you know test to be brought to investors? Is that something that you know y'all underwrite and collaborate with the sponsor, or, or how does a deal then get brought on once they've been approved as a potential sponsor? Yeah, I mean that goes through our quality control metrics. So we'll we'll visit the deal, we'll review the PCA, we'll review the environmental, you know, we'll we'll review you know any of the third parties to ensure that there's not anything. Um, you know, outlandish or that would, you know, disqualify the deal from being on the platform. And then we're also doing equality control to ensure that there's not, you know, material errors, right? So if we get a model, for example, that says that, you know, this market's going to have 20% rent growth in year one, like I would deem that a material error, right? Uh, so, you know, we're, we're looking for sort of material errors like that, um, which, you know, maybe the sponsor's aware of, maybe the sponsor's not aware of, you know, sometimes, you'll have an issue in a financial model that, you know, we're QCing, um, you know, to ensure that there's no material errors. Have you seen um, like institutional capital or family office capital? You know, when, when I think when I think of crowdfunding, I think of the, you know, individual uh, giving access to folks that maybe not have had access in the past, but you know, are you seeing that there's starting to become folks that show up to the table that always have had access and now they're just looking at crowdfunding as another way to deploy capital? By and large, the majority of the capital is still truly individual investors. Um, we have had some family offices. We have had some RIAs, you know, that have deployed capital uh, into into various deals, you know, through our technology with real estate companies. So, you know, we've seen some of that, but you know, really our mission has always been to empower individual investors. And so we don't spend time, you know, specifically building products for, you know, family offices or RIAs. Got it. How do y'all's REITs work? I'm assuming they're privately held or and not publicly held. Like what was the idea around the REITs and, and how do they work? Sure. So I guess just for starters, a REIT is a, a real estate investment trust, um, and it's a pool of assets. So as an investor on our platform, they can either invest in a specific deal, so like a specific apartment building, specific office building, specific shopping center, or into one of the real estate investment trusts or REITs, which are you know pools of assets. Um, we have two REITs. One is focused on income, and that has a variety of property types, so multifamily office retail, um, and then the other one is multifamily growth, and that's just for multifamily and just for value-add deals. The, the reason we created the REITs is because we had a lot of investors saying to us, I either don't have the time or I don't have the knowledge or I don't want to pick and choose individual deals. You know, Realty Mogul, will you pick them for me? And so we launched a registered investment advisor. That registered investment advisor, you know, has the two REITs as clients, and it has discretion over, you know, where that REIT capital is invested into. Um, the other reason that we launched the REITs is because we wanted investors to have the ability to invest at a, at a lower minimum so that they could build, you know, trust and confidence in real estate. And they could also build trust and confidence, you know, in, in Realty Mogul. So the investment minimum for the REITs at $5,000, the investment minimum for most of the individual assets is typically $25,000 or $35,000. Um, the REITs are structured as public non-traded REITs. So from a public perspective, we have the ability to bring in capital from accredited investors or non-accredited investors 
the individual deals are limited to accredited investors. But just because they're public, they're non-traded. So you can't trade them on a stock market like, you know, a traditional real estate investment trust. So, you know, the structure allows uh, for, for accredited and non-accredited investors to invest. It allows for lower minimums. Um, and we do have a, a share repurchase program, but it's subject to certain limitations. So, you know, it's not liquid the way that a publicly traded REIT is liquid. Um, there's a discount for the first three years. There's a, a lockup, so you can't exit for the first year. And then it's subject to availability, right? So there's limits from the regulators on, you know, how many redemptions that we can do in any given year. So what I, what I say to investors is don't think of these as liquid vehicles. You know, real estate investments tend to be for the long term. Don't invest dinner table money. You know, really think about this as a long-term investment. But if you wanted liquidity, the process would be to let Realty mogul know, hey, we want, is it like a certain time of year? We want to um, have liquidity and then y'all have a, a buyer pool or, or folks that have wanted to get into the REIT that could buy those shares at a certain time each year? The REIT actually buys them back itself. So um, it's quarterly. Uh, so an investor has to notice, you know, by the end of the quarter to go into the pool of, you know, sellers and then subject to, you know, availability, the REIT will actually buy those shares back directly. It's not a it's not like a secondary trading market where you've got sellers on one side and buyers on the on the other side. The sellers are selling back directly into the REIT. Got it. Even on the private deal side, um, is the is the push to have a more built out secondary market for LPs that want to trade in and out of LP interests? Is that something that is on y'all's radar? I know, I know it gets talked about in the industry in general, but how do you think about kind of a secondary market, not necessarily through the REITs, but through just private deals in general? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about this a lot as a, as a company, and historically, I don't think the primary market's been big enough. So the reason that we haven't built it is because, you know, you need to have a robust enough primary market in order to have a really robust secondary market. And, you know, now that that we've had close to a billion dollars invested on the platform or through the platform, you know, you're starting to see the primary market get big enough. Um, so I, I think that there is a world in the future where that secondary market is going to make a lot of sense. You know, the question is, how do you get enough information to actually value those assets, right? And is it a secondary market whereby there's a fixed price or is it a secondary market where you've got, you know, buyers and sellers on either side and you've got a bid and an ask and a bid and an ask spread, sort of like what happens in the public markets? Um, I don't know the answer to that, right? I, I don't know if sellers are going to have the confidence to sell if they you know, have to value that asset themselves effectively because it's challenging to value assets when you're not, you know, in the real estate world sort of day in and day out. Um, and then same on the buyer side. I mean, I would think that the buyer side would probably be more sophisticated in, in underwriting, you know, real estate assets if they're going to be on the buy side, but remains to be seen. So I, I think I think you will see a secondary market over time. I think that whether it's, you know, fixed pricing or auction type pricing remains to be seen. Can you speak at all to, you know, one of the things that I hear get brought up, you probably have talked about it a million times around like a capital call situation where they need to call capital, you know, there could be hundreds of investors in your deal, one, the logistics of that, doing it at a time when people aren't expecting it, like has, how is that thought out and have you have any experience around that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't know that it's that different than offline syndications prior to online crowdfunding, right? So a lot of times in offline syndications or sort of country club type syndications, you would you would have a lot of investors as well. I think the difference is that the sponsor typically would have, 
you know, personal relationships with those individuals. So they golf with them or they play tennis with them or they were a friend of a friend, you know, et cetera. Um, but I think it's from a process perspective, it's probably not that different between an offline syndication and an online syndication. You know, most deals are structured where they don't have mandatory capital calls, but they have a structure for member loans to come in that are senior to the equity. So in that case, the crowdfunded investors equity would become subordinate to any member loan. Most of the member loans have interest rates between, you know, 12 and 20%. So depending on the deal, and this is outlined in, you know, the operating agreement or the PPM, you know, for investors to be aware of, but that 12 to 20% member loan is, you know, to incentivize folks to participate in the member loan. Um, and we've seen capital calls in the past, right? So you have to keep in mind, although crowdfunding still feels relatively new, we've been around for 10 years. So in instances in the past, the crowdfunded investors either choose to contribute their pro rata capital or the sponsor contributes, you know, under the member loan structure or brings it brings in other investors under the member loan structure. So, you know, we've also had the idea and we haven't executed on this, but we could also create, you know, uh, uh, an opportunity for that real estate company to actually syndicate that capital call across other investors. So first, the investors who are in the deal, you know, would get the first right to participate in that capital call. Then, you know, the sponsor would have the right to participate in the capital call, you know, pro rata. And then if they're still left over, the real estate company could actually syndicate that capital call across, you know, our, the, the broader network, um, if you will. So I think there's, there's a, a lot of different opportunities of how that could work. In most instances that we've seen thus far, you know, the real estate companies had the capital on hand. It's come as a member loan and investors have been subordinated to the member loan. All right. We're 10 years into to crowdfunding. Maybe, you know, real estate syndication has been around for a long time. Is there any kind of two or three data points or things that really stick out to you that kind of represent some of the massive tailwinds that are behind crowdfunding as, as people think about this, you know, as we look to the next 10 years? Yeah, look, I, I think it's really looking at the average capital raise per deal for these sponsors. So, you know, for many years, and I talk about, you know, it sort of took us seven years to get to a place where, um, you know, there there was good kind of flywheel in the business. But for years, real estate companies would raise, you know, a million to $2 million per deal via crowdfunding. And it took a really long time to get to critical mass. So as an example, we recently had a sponsor raise $17 million in equity on the platform for a development deal in Nashville. And it was really this amazing moment when it felt like crowdfunded real estate deals could finally compete with larger institutional capital sources. And so I think that, you know, as you look out to the next 10 years, it's going to be larger deals and larger dollars. Um, so today, the average, you know, capital raise via crowdfunding is probably five or six million dollars per deal. If you look out 10 years, I think that retail crowdfunding is going to truly compete with institutions. And you're going to see check sizes of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars per deal, which, you know, again, we, we've gotten a pretty good critical mass today. But, you know, you you think about tripling, quadrupling the size of our database over the next couple of years, which, you know, we're actively working on. And those average sizes are just going to continue to go up. And I think that from developers perspective or from sponsors perspectives, they would much rather have a consortium of retail investors than a major institution because that consortium of retail investors is not going to require, you know, the same controls that a traditional institution will. So, you know, I've always believed in this industry long term, um, always believed in sort of the what it could be as, you know, those larger check sizes get more realistic and, and more uh, consistent. I agree with you. 
I hear it brought up a lot more. Um, you said five to six million per deal. Does that mean right now? And is it or is it a? Do you guys care? Do you have to be have a controlling uh, size in the LP stack, or can you be a minority um, position in the LP stack? So we're, we're typically a minority investor, or not we, I shouldn't say we, the, the investors who are investing, you know, directly with the issuer, directly with the sponsor are typically going in as a minority investor. So, you know, sponsors can use the platform how they see fit. Sometimes the investors from the real to mogul platform account for the majority, it might be, you know, 90% of the deal and the sponsors in for 10%. Sometimes those investors could be a minority, you know, collectively in the deal, like 25% of the deal if the sponsors have their own network. And then the pathway to, uh, you know, from 250,000 to call it a million investors, are you seeing a lot of the folks, is it, is it word of mouth or is it, hey, look at the sponsors that Realty Mogul has on? Like, how are uh, these people beginning to arrive, assuming that we've already kind of crossed the barrier that, you know, crowdfunding is a very thing that we can trust. And now, like, what's the next 750,000 great sponsors, LPs, word of mouth to friends and family that, you know, they've done it? Like, how are you seeing most people show up? Look, I wish there was a silver bullet. Um, there's no silver bullet. It's, it's hard work. It's one investor at a time. You know, my, my philosophy is that first and foremost, it starts with a great client experience. So, you know, for our existing members and for our existing real estate companies, like, give them a good experience, right? Perfect the basics. Pick up the phone. You know, let them know that there's people on the other end of the phone, even though we are a, you know, digital and, and technology company um, and start there. Right. And then that drives word of mouth. That drives a great reputation in the market. Um, and then above and beyond that, you know, it's it's search engine optimization. It's education. It's, you know, me being on podcasts like this. It's live events. It's, you know, really trying to get our name out there, get our brand out there and, and attach real human beings to the brand who, you know, deeply care about the success of both sides of the marketplace. All right. I'll end it on uh, maybe one question. Don't mean to put you on the spot, but if there was like one idea or thing that like you think deeply about that maybe, you know, folks in the industry are not thinking about, like, is there something that you think a lot about that either hadn't been created yet or just something you want to see? Maybe we've already covered it, but like, what's the biggest thing that you think about over the next 10 years? Look, I wish I had a great answer for you, but I, I think it's keep putting one foot in front of the other, right? I mean, one of our core values is to empower the investor. So one of the things we really want to do over the next 10 years is broaden the types of deals that investors can invest in. So whether it's, you know, cold storage or mobile home parks or, you know, other types of product around real estate and especially going into this next cycle, right? There's, there's due to be some distressed deals going to this next cycle, right? So can we give investors the opportunity to invest in those types of transactions? I mean, it's all about access. How do we broaden access for this subset of investors? How do we help them find deals that they couldn't find on their own? Um, you know, 60, 60, 65% of the deals on the real to mogul platform to date have been multifamily. So we're, we're really actively trying to broaden those types of investments. If, you know, 10 years from now I look up and 65% of the transactions on the, on the platform are multifamily, we haven't succeeded, right? Because that core value of empowering people and providing broader access needs to expand beyond multifamily, right? Frankly, investors, if they want to be an active investor, they can go buy an apartment building you know, most investors are not going to go buy, you know, a data storage or an industrial building or, uh, you know, cold storage building. So I think going more into those specialty niches so that we can broaden access is really, really critical. All right. 
That was great. Jillian, thank you for your time today. This was awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.